Hi, this is Tim Lunabus. You might remember me as Lieutenant Daniel Kwan on Star Trek Next Generation, Eye of the Beholder. And you are listening to Trek Untold. Hello and welcome to Trek Untold, the podcast that goes beyond the stars. I'm your host, Matthew Kaplowitz. One of the best things about Star Trek is how it's always pushed the boundaries when it came to race and gender. When Nichelle Nichols first appeared on board the Enterprise, not only was it a woman on the bridge, but it was a black woman. The show has always done its best to be ahead of the curve, and that has been the appeal of Star Trek to so many marginalized groups. Whoopi Goldberg was inspired to act thanks to seeing Uhura on TV. And here on Trek Untold, we've spoken to many other actors who have said similar things. Being able to identify with someone who looks like you and is doing something that feels out of your grasp helps remind us that nothing is impossible. And that leads us to today's guest, Tim Lunibus. Tim began acting in the early 90s, and you may have seen him in his appearances on Beverly Hills 90210 as Walter Chen, General Hospital as Dr. Bennett, Dr. Ron Bryant on Passions, and a host of other shows, including Jag, Crossing Jordan, The West Wing, Becker, The Practice, and many, many more, some of which we're going to discuss today. Most recently, you've seen him in Hawaii Five O, and Tim had a recurring role in Bosch as Ed Sung. And of course, Tim was in an episode of the last season of Star Trek The Next Generation, as Lieutenant Daniel Kwan in Eye of the Beholder. He also lent his voice to a character in the Star Trek Away Team video game, and has one other appearance in the Star Trek franchise that's pretty surprising. But if you want to hear what that is, you're going to have to keep listening. This is also the first time we've had an Asian actor appear in the show, representing Eastern Asia in particular. We had Eric Avari recently, who would represent South Asia, being a native of Bengal, but Tim has a Korean heritage, along with being mixed race, which we're going to talk about today. When you look at the history of Star Trek, when it comes to Asian representation, the numbers are pretty small. It's something I started to notice when I began thinking about doing this podcast, and in turn paid more attention to who the supporting cast was. And of course there are obvious names you can mention in this discussion, and that would be of course George Takei as Lieutenant Sulu, Garrett Wong as Lieutenant Kim, and there's a handful of others I can name off the top of my head like Patty Asutake, but really the numbers are extremely tiny when you look at it. And for the most part, the majority of those roles tend to be mostly just background characters doing nothing. Now, we're not going to do a deep dive into that today, but it's surprising for a show like Star Trek to be so big on diversity, but underrepresent the Asian community so much. But Star Trek isn't the only culprit in Hollywood that seems oblivious to Asian representation. And as you'll hear from Tim, it's something that is starting to improve, but there's a long road ahead. Tim has a story about working in Hollywood that's often been kept quiet, but today on Trek Untold, we help make sure he has a voice, and others in his community do too. Before we jump into our interview, I want to remind everyone to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Trek Untold. And that's all one word, no spaces. You can also support this show by visiting patreon.com slash trekuntold. If you want to check out some of our merch and put Trek Untold on a shirt, hoodie, mug, sticker, or something else, head on over to teespring.com slash stores slash Trek Untold to proudly display how much you like this podcast. 
And if you do happen to get some Trek Untold merch, go ahead and tag us on social media and let us know you got it. We'd love to see it. But most of all, please make sure to subscribe to this podcast and to leave a rating and a review. There is a lot of Star Trek podcasts out there, as I'm sure you already know, and leaving ratings and reviews helps people find us when they're searching for these types of shows. If you're already following us or offering your support in whatever way you can, be it a follow, review, monetarily, or even just listening today, thank you for the help. There's a family of Star Trek podcasts out there, and we appreciate you joining us here each and every week on the show. I'd also like to make a quick shout out to our friends at Triple Fiction Productions, who make some great 3D printed Star Trek inspired products for toys and people. But you'll hear more about them a little bit later on in the show. Now, without further ado, let's beam up this week's guest. Computer, access interview file. Affirmative. Initiating program. And welcome back to Trek Untold. And now joining us across the other side of the line, we've got a man with one Star Trek appearance you've seen, one you might have a vague idea about, and another that you've probably never, ever seen before. He also did the unthinkable. He left acting and somehow managed to return and come back stronger than ever. Today, we're talking with Tim Lunabus. Tim, how's it going today? Very good, thank you. So, Tim, what is your earliest memory of Star Trek? Oh, wow. Um, I mean, I watched it as a young kid, uh, the original Star Trek. My best friend, a guy named Mark Snyder, lived next door. We were same age, and uh, we used to just eat it up. Um, you know, and the, and the episodes that stick out the strongest for me from back then, and they still remain my favorite, I think, today are uh the ones with abraham lincoln uh <laughs> apollo ah yeah that's and, a good one uh and then and then i always loved triples i actually had a in eighth grade i got a pet triple at my first convention <laughs> so i had that for years and then i ended up gifting it to a friend of mine a classmate tim maloney who uh ended up working for nasa and he was a huge trekkie so i uh probably about it was like maybe five years ago or so i sent it to him Oh, wow. Did you ever get to meet Michael Forrest at a convention? I did not. Um, I uh, No, I did not. <laughs> uh, well, hopefully when conventions begin again, and hopefully you'll do one of them at some point, too, as a signing. I hope you get to actually meet Michael Forrest. I haven't met him myself yet, but he seems like a really great guy. Yeah, yeah. And I am approved to do uh, conventions, and a couple of times I thought I was going to do the Vegas one, but I ended up uh, booking work, so it was unavailable. That's not a bad excuse to not no, go to no, Star Trek Vegas if you're working a gig. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So before we start talking about your professional career, can you tell us a little bit about your background? Who were your parents, what they did, and what little Tim wanted to be when he grew up? Well, it's interesting. My mom, um, she was actually born in Japan. She actually saw the atom bomb, mushroom cloud, but she was Korean and didn't know it. <laughs> so uh -huh. uh, the family lived in disguise while... Uh, uh, my grandfather had a successful business. And then what happened is that when uh, the end of the war, World War II, uh, the, my mom remembers them listening to the emperor on the radio. And, uh, and all the kids were crying, you know, that they had lost and all that stuff. And then uh, my dad goes, or my grandfather told them, don't worry, we're not Japanese, we're Korean. And we're leaving. <laughs> so, <laughs> so they went to uh, back to Korea to Jeju Island, where she actually became the smartest. She was the smartest girl on the island, I guess. And so she was uh, designated the flower bearer for uh, General MacArthur when he came. And then she also, uh, as she got older, uh, was 
a greeter. She she was chosen to sort of greet a lot of uh, dignitaries who would uh, visit. And then she came. She met a GI <laughs> and uh, uh, ended up leaving with him over to here. And he was not a very good husband or father. And fortunately, he left when I was four. But uh, that's what brought her over here. And that's what and that's why I'm here. Um, she is an amazing woman. She's uh, now <coughs> she was born in 33. So what's today? She's she's going to be 87 in December. And uh, she remarried when I was eight, and he's my dad. And my dad is an attorney, <laughs> uh, retired. He's he's actually dealing with dementia, and uh, we think we're in his latter days. But uh, he's been an amazing influence in my life. So as a kid, did you think you were going to be an actor? Yeah, growing up, I uh, I had very different aspirations. I was always the best athlete in my class, and... Uh, for for a while there, I thought I might be a basketball player, uh, you know, for a profession. Um, I also, before that, thought I was going to be a priest at, uh, early on. And then I uh, hit puberty and realized uh, can't get married, can't have children, uh, <laughs> not going to happen for me. <laughs> so, so, I guess it happens to a lot so, of kids that age but, when they think about that uh, career path. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, I was, in, and I think I had toiled toyed with the idea of being a, a teacher early on as well, because I just love helping people. And I've always, whenever anyone's in need of help or anything, I'm, I'm like the first person there. And, uh, and I was always like kind of leader in my class. And so, um, that stuff came naturally. But then, uh, when I was in college, I still had no intention whatsoever of taking an acting class, being an actor or anything like that. Uh, but as I was getting near the end it was in 88. I went to breakfast one morning because I was sort of going through a mini crisis of what do I want to do with my life? You know, you're, as, you, as you get close to the end of college. And uh, I saw at the time was planning on going to grad school and getting my MBA. And I was planning on being the next APG and ENI because I had a, a job uh, at Bank of America at the time. And then uh but I really sat down with, at this breakfast thinking, what do I want to do? I, I knew I was creative. I've always loved to write. I, my earliest memories are singing to the radio. And uh, I had decided at that point that I was going to put, uh, while I was young, I was going to put the next five years into something creative. It was either going to be acting, writing, or singing. And by that end of the breakfast, I decided that singing was out because I had never seen an Asian American successful singer at that point. Writing was out because at the time, my English teacher, who I loved, and I think this was probably ill advice, but he didn't think I should go that route because it's too difficult. In fact, he told the class as a whole, don't become writers. <laughs> so he goes, he goes, write for enjoyment, but not for a profession because the career, it's, it's too difficult. And, uh, and then I thought about acting, and I'd never acted before. But I also knew that even though at that point, I didn't see any successful really Asian-American male actor. I know James Shigeta had been in Flower Drum Song and, and things like that. He was a leading man in his time. But I saw that as a future possibility because at that time it was still domestic, but I knew it was going to go global. And I expected it to go global in a big way. And that so much of the population of, you know, of, of earth is Asian. And I figured, yeah, I think I have a shot at this. So I, at that point, uh, enrolled in acting classes and 
and after five years, I was making a living and started that wasn't wasn't turning back. And so, where did you go to acting school? So, in the beginning, I went to Cal Berkeley, and so that's where I first I took Drama Ten and One Ten. Those are beginning and intermediate acting, and then in San Francisco. I started taking class at a place called Jean Shelton Acting School, and and you know she uh, follows, uh, you know, sort of the, what you would think is the method type acting. Um, I went also. There were like uh, different uh, seminars and stuff that were going on up there, acting seminars, and there was a guy that I ended up really uh, hooking up with named Cliff Osmond. And he had probably the most profound impact on me as an actor at that time. And when I came down to L.A., I made the decision to come down to L.A. in the beginning of of 90. Um, his wife was an agent. And so she became my first agent. And uh, and I continued to study with him. You know, at that time when we were studying together, it was uh, Vince Vaughn was in the class, um, Jason Scott Lee couple others uh, uh the guy from doogie hauser black guy was on doogie hauser i cannot remember i think his name is marcus but i can't remember his name now but we all used to hang out and uh oh and ahmed ahmed who's a wonderful stand-up comic but yeah but those were the times that i that i was starting and what was it about cliff that was so great for you and that and so pivotal for your early education in acting well yeah in the beginning you need to understand i was an athlete and I was extremely competitive. Um, I was very, uh, I was also coming up, you know, from, I, I alluded to the fact that I did not have a good dad in the beginning and he was extremely abusive. And so I, from those early days, uh, felt the need to be a perfectionist and uh, so that I wouldn't get hit. So I beat myself up a lot and he was someone who did not give I mean, he's like bigger than me. You know, I was six, six, one, little under six, two, and he was probably around six, three, six, four. And, uh, he had done so much in his life as an actor, you know, he, he didn't, uh, he didn't give, give me anything, you know, he didn't let me get away with anything. And so it was a combination of, he was the first person to get me to get out of my head to stop uh, having these explosions in the middle of scenes because it was not fair to anyone else around me, you know, and that sort of opened up my eyes because that appealed to the person who wanted to be a teacher and a priest earlier on that I cared about others. And I hadn't at that point was so into my head and myself that I wasn't thinking about how I was affecting others. I was just so pissed off that I felt like I was being pulled out of the scene. And uh, so he was instrumental in uh, grounding me, in in getting me to be a uh, really giving and and generous actor, uh, and who also he also taught me the technical aspects very well of acting. And after him was a guy named Sal Romeo, and he was a huge influence on me as well. But uh, but it was the same thing, both about grounding me, getting peeling through the different layers of the onion, you know, having all this other stuff going on underneath that create a full character. Yeah, it's a good lesson to learn when you're especially early on the acting world. So I'm hoping some folks listening today yeah. who are new to the world as well will use that advice. Yeah. So Tim, do you remember what your first ever professional gig was on a show or a film? <laughs> uh, 
let's let's talk about TV. I guess not industrial videos because my first gigs were industrial videos. Oh, I'd say um, that counts. What did you do with those? Oh, it does. Okay, my first one was uh, an industrial video uh, for. Uh, well, actually, oh my God, the very first one was when I was in school at Berkeley, and there was I can't even remember what it's called. It's like a little medical uh, company, and I did something for them. And it was basically me and my wife and uh, talking about whatever. I had to do with uh, AIDS. And we were talking and I showed this video to a guy named Ed Hooks, who was one of the seminars that I would go to. And actually, he, he, he was wonderful, too. But he looked at it and he couldn't help but laugh. And he goes, Tim, I'm sorry, but this is not good. <laughs> you know, I, was, I was so ready to have him go, hey, great job, Tim. And he goes, no, you're fine. He goes, but this is really not good. Don't show this to anyone. <laughs> um, and then uh, from there, the first professional industrials were uh, with Mervyn's, Office Club, and uh, Hewlett Packard. Hmm. And, uh, and those were great, great experiences for me. Because I was getting hands-on learning of, of being on a set, of understanding where the camera was and where I needed to be and all of that. You know, all of that I was able to learn before going on to a television show, you know, and I was able to avoid mistakes that an early actor makes, you know, a new actor makes. Uh, and then from there, my very, I came down to uh, L.A. I did like six industrial videos in Northern California. And then I moved to, to L.A., Studio City, and uh, took six months before my first job, which was another industrial video. I want to say First Interstate Bank. And then uh, from there, you know, it was nothing was happening. And, you know, and I remember being, you know, I knew that I had to pay my dues, you know, and, uh, you know, but when you're going to class and you're working with, you're, you're doing class with people who you see are working, you know, I, I remember expressing frustration to, to my teacher at the time, Sal Romeo. And he goes, Tim, trust me, it's going to happen. You just need to just stay in it. He goes, you're good. And it's just a matter of, of more people getting to know you, more casting people getting to know you. And then once you start working, you know, once you get the job and validate yourself, then other jobs will, will start coming in because you will be validated as an actor. And, uh, and he was right. Um, so my first, very first job, which was another wonderful experience, best, best first job I could have had was a small spot on uh, the soap opera Bold and the Beautiful. And, uh, you know, I went in, it was at CBS uh, over there on Fairfax and Melrose and, uh, or not Melrose, Beverly, Beverly and Fairfax. You know, when I first, you first start off with rehearsal. And I remember when I first got in, the woman, her name was Darlene. Um, she was like the matriarch, family matriarch. I remember right off the bat, she was putting me in my place. You know, she was making it clear, you will not upstage me, even though I only had one line, which was, yes, ma'am. <laughs> you know, so, so, That's a very critical and, line. Uh, that could just change the entire outcome of the series. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, by the end, she was pinching my cheek and, you know, and all this stuff. And everyone, once they learned this was my first job, it was like everyone was so nice to me and so helpful. And, you know, it was just a great experience. And then from there, I did another soap. And, uh, and then after that, I started booking some small TV roles uh, and film roles. And I remember my first small TV role that was more than one day was a thing called Profiles. 
and that worked for three days. And, uh, and that was another cool experience. And that was with Carrie Moss and, uh, Suzanne Plachette and, uh, others. And, and, uh, you know, it, just everything it's, it, it becomes, uh, it's funny now when we're talking about, it, I start remembering those days, but, uh, everything always was a stepping stone to something else, you know, and you learned from it and you gained from it and you moved on. But, uh, my favorite thing about working in general is, is the set. It's not being on camera, but being on the set and being around others who are, who are collaborating on this project. So Tim, can you paint a picture for us of what it's like to be an Asian American actor in Hollywood in the early nineties? <laughs> sure. That's the big question. Yeah. And, uh, it was, uh, it was rough so often, you know, I always say the, 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 the biggest line I always heard, we're not going that way. <laughs> you know, you would never hear that today, but back then that was a common thing. Yeah. You know, we're not going that way. And, uh, I used to, I remember all these people, you know, whether it be casting people or other people, uh, you know, peers or what have you, or their, or their representatives they used to tell me, you know, people would tell me, dude, they, they're talking about you. And, and it's like any day now you're going to blow up. Well, that never happened. And, and it was because there was that ceiling. And, uh, you know, if 10 years later, I'd come along, maybe things have been different, but, um, it was, I was fortunate. I was really fortunate because back then, you know, saying that, you know, I had, I had the, the negative aspect of not being able to shoot through the roof because of that glass ceiling. But at the same time, I worked a lot. And I know a lot of people who did not work. We were a very close-knit group back then. So you always knew everybody and what everybody was doing, whether that was in front of or behind the camera. You know, and then when I left for that seven years and came back, it was totally different. I mean, the landscape's totally changed where you can't keep up with how many people are working. But back then, yeah, it was uh, rarely the lead. You know, and if I was the lead, that was for an indie film or something like that. Um, if it was network primetime show, you know, I'd be the 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 guy on, uh, you know, the fifth detective or the partner or something like that. But uh, it was definitely a, it could be a very frustrating time, but I also made a fairly good living. Now, I've talked to actors like uh, Alex Datcher, who said like the stereotypical role that female black actors would often be given would be a prostitute or, uh, you know, a lot of black men, if they were larger, would often be just offered the thug role, those kinds of things. Uh, um, you know, and typically there is like a stereotypical role for an Asian man, but, uh, you know, we've mentioned how you're not yeah. the typical looking Asian man. You're six yeah, foot one, you're a big guy. So you got a pretty diverse roles here. Yeah. And that became, it, it was weird because they weren't going that way for certain parts, but in other parts, yeah, he's not Asian enough or he's not what we're, he's not five, six. You know, and he's, he's not the delivery guy or he's not the what have you. And I refused to do anything that I felt was ethnically demeaning or stereotypical. And so there are a lot of parts that I did not go for or, you know, refused to accept or what have you, because I didn't like how it was going. I didn't like where it was, what, what, what the char characterization was. And, uh, and so that, that was limiting to me as well. But, uh, uh, yeah, so my, my, the, the thing that I was fortunate about is that there was advocacy at that time. There was groups like Mana and, uh, East West players, um, from the Asian American side, um, 
and and other groups and then they also banded with you know latino groups and uh african american groups etc for for this forcing the networks and the studios they started feeling the pressure especially networks of having to have more inclusion but back then it was very much uh just do this to get them off our backs so throw in the little guy here or the you know, not the big roles, the smaller roles. Put some here and there just so that we can say, see, we're being diverse. Now get it, get away. Let it, Leave us alone. Let us do our thing. You know, whereas today it's completely different because they are actively looking for inclusion in their projects because now it's a money issue. Now they feel like they're, they're, they will bring more eyeballs to their shows. They will have more ticket buyers, et cetera, because of the fact that you know, you have expanded demographics, which has always been my argument from the beginning, but Hollywood was slow to uh, to take that on or to accept that. So through the 90s, aside from Star Trek, you appeared in plenty of big shows, and that includes Becker, The Pretender, Touched by an Angel, Suddenly Susan, Jag, The West Wing. But before we get into Trek, uh, I want to talk about a few, other, a few of these other shows. Uh, and the one that I think of the list of things you've been on, the one I watched the most growing up was The Nanny. And uh, you were in season six. <laughs> that episode was making yeah. Whoopi. Uh, and so your scene in particular, well, on the final version, it's basically shared with Charles Shaughnessy and you're next to Tom Bergeron and they're all in the Hollywood Squares set. So I'm just kind of curious when you guys filmed that, clearly you're in the same spot with Tom Bergeron, but were you actually filming the same day as the other people, uh, the, other, the other stars in the show? Yeah, we were We were all hanging around. Really? We were okay. all, uh, oh yeah. So so all of those, I think Snoop Dogg was in it. Yeah, we were all, we were all, uh, and, out, and you know, and, and people, some people were inviting me to come over, but and to hang out in their rooms or stuff like that. But I actually, I forget what it was, but there was a playoff game going on, and uh, and so anytime I was not on set, I was sitting in front of a television set watching the game, huh. and I can't even remember what game it was. I just know it was like an important playoff game. <laughs> so uh, I had my uh, priorities, I guess. Um, but that was a wonderful. Uh, you know, fun day of shooting. And, uh, and that came about, I didn't audition for that. Um, I was doing a play at that time and it was four one acts, uh, which actually this play, the other great thing about this play that ties into what we were talking about earlier in terms of star Trek is that the guy who was Apollo, uh, Michael, Michael Forrest. the Michael Forrest. Yep. Oh, I'm sorry. So I have met Michael Forrest. What am I thinking? I was thinking of DeForest Kelly when you said, when you uh. said, when I heard Forrest. <laughs> yeah. Michael Forrest. Yeah. We, Michael Forrest and I had a great time together. So um, the thing about Michael Forrest was that he was in this other one act that was being directed by a casting director named April Webster, who is also involved in the theater community. And so April's the one who cast me in The Nanny. She just asked, uh, we have this part that opened up. Will you do it? And I said, sure. And so that's how that came about. But Michael Forrest, I did not, you know, when you're doing one acts, um, and you're not in the other person's one act, you don't always, you know, you see each other kind of, but you don't hang out or anything. You're, you do your, you're, you're concentrating on your own one act. And, uh, but then when it came to opening night, you know, I was looking at the program before the show started. And, uh, I was looking at the bios of the different actors and I came across Michael Forrest and I was, and, and you understand at this point, Michael Forrest was, I believe, 72, 72 or 73. I think he was 72. And he still was like this leading man, 
uh, carried himself, you know, his carriage was so impressive, you know, and actually the one act that he was doing was with, uh, was sort of a romantic, uh, about a relationship and, uh, and yeah, he, he was so impressive. And so I see, I'm reading his, uh, bio and at the very last line, um, you know, talked about being Apollo in Star Trek and I'm not someone who, uh, get starstruck or anything like that. But once in a while, like with the mother from uh, uh, man from Atlantis, when I first met her, I, I got, Oh my God, goosebumps, uh, shivers, just like freaking out a little bit. Like this is Apollo. I, I, I'm with <laughs> Apollo in this. And so then uh, fast forward. And now it's the final night. And when the show ends, you know, everyone does what's called a strike where you take down, you help uh, take down the set and put things away, et cetera, and basically close up the show. And so I was, I made a beeline so that I would be with Mike because we were partnering up. So Mike and I uh, worked together all night and, uh, uh, and we were using a cart, one of those golf carts drive back and forth between the warehouse and the, and the theater. And so we had a great conversation. He told me about his whole career and he told me how he had made the decision shortly after being Apollo to, uh, he had been talked into going to Italy to do Westerns, you know, the spaghetti Westerns and, uh, ended up being a really bad decision for him. And then he finally came back to, when he came back to Hollywood, no one cared about him anymore. No one remembered he, you know, he didn't have the momentum or anything anymore. Uh, so that was kind of sad, but I did ask him, I said, Mike, I go, you, you're so, you know, you seem so fit still and everything. And at that time, you know, I was, I was thinking about, I was feeling like starting to get aches and, you know, feeling the need to take naps at time and stuff like that. And I was like going, you know, I noticed a real difference, um, between the twenties and now I'm 30 and, and is this gonna slow down at some point? Does it level off? And he goes, Oh no, it gets worse. Every decade gets much worse. <laughs> I was like, oh man. Well, at least he was and he honest. Goes, That's why he goes, I still work out every day. He goes, you have to work out every day. And unfortunately, I haven't followed that advice. <laughs> and just real quick, back on the nanny, it wasn't Snoop Dogg. It was actually Coolio in that episode. And that also had... Uh, oh, Coolio. Coolio, yeah. And Coolio, okay. He also had that same one, Howie Mandel, Caroline Ray, Bruce Valanche, basically the regulars that were there. Uh, so that's, that's yeah. a pretty great cast to be around. I ended up episode. producing an award show later that had, that we used Bruce Valanche. Oh, yeah, he sounds um, pretty... I've I heard interviews with him with, on the Gilbert Gottfried show. I really enjoyed hearing him talk about stuff. Yeah, yeah, interesting guy. But that was a fun shoot. So another thing that you did that I just found out about, which, uh, to be honest, my brain completely pushed it out of my head, Saved by the Bell, the new class. You were in Season <laughs> 7. You were Sy- Sergeant Meinhardt of the Palisades Police and Fire <laughs> Academy. And uh, this is basically a spinoff that uh, had Dennis Haskins and Dustin Diamond basically guiding a new crop of hormonal teens into the Bayside High. And uh, yeah, you did three episodes yeah. there when the when the class went to do some police academy stuff. Correct. Uh, yeah, well, did you like your time on that show? I loved my time on that show. It was just a wonderful, another, you know, again, a wonderful experience. It also let me know that I was now one of the older guys, <laughs> you know, because I was working with all these kids who were... I think range, the youngest guy was around 15, 16 years old. And then it went up to like 23. And uh, I'll never forget sitting at a table with them. You know, the camera changes and uh, you got some time where you're talking and hanging out. And we were talking about music. 
And I said something about James Taylor. And there was just this blank stare on everyone's face. <laughs> and at that point, I went, oh, my God. And I go, you guys have never heard of James Taylor? And they're like, no. <laughs> and, so, and then, then the other thing I remember. Uh, they haven't Anthony, seen fire or rain. <laughs> no, no, not at all. And I remember that uh, one, one of the days at the end of shooting where uh, I passed, I think it was Anthony in the hallway as you know, we're leaving. And I go to give the, you know, the old guy uh, shake and uh, he goes to bump me with a, give me a fist bump. <laughs> and then I go to return the fist bump. He's trying to change it to a shake. And then, you know, then it was just like we passed each other and laughed. And, you know, so, yeah, that's where I started to feel like, ah, oh, yeah, I'm not the young buck anymore. I'm not the young guy. But uh, but that was a wonderful show. Um, it also, uh, I loved Northern Exposure when that show had come out. And that coincided with me coming to Hollywood. And uh, Dana, uh, I can't remember her full name, but she had been on Northern Exposure, had a great role in Northern Exposure. And so they had cast her in this um, as the cook. And she was great. She was fun to work with. And you could see how everyone, even the producers and stuff, were coming up to her saying thank her for thanking her for, you know, agreeing to do the show and stuff like that. But the other interesting thing about that, and this is also something about Hollywood, is that um, they were not renewed. And uh, that was found out while I was working uh, during one of the episodes there. That's right. Yeah. Cause you were in the and, last season, I believe. And, yeah. And so I remember, um, some of the actors, you could see sort of this feeling of, of desperation that, uh, what are we going to do now? What's going to happen? You know? And, and it's interesting. That's something that happens for, I think every actor, you know, I mean, you know, it depends, not, not the stars. They always know there's another gig. But there are other people, other actors who it's always sort of going from show to show. And even if you're a series regular, you know, if you're not the number one, two or three person on the show, if you're if you're down the ladder a bit, you know, there's always that fear. You know, you have that sense of security while you're working. But once the job ends, then you start wondering uh, what's next. Is there going to be a next? You know, and I think that's something that actors always have with them. One of the cast members, uh, I can't remember her name now. She was the Latina uh, girl, gal. She uh, and she was a girl at the time. I mean, I think she was she was a minor still. Uh, but uh, she lived in the condominium that I lived in. In the we we did not know that, and then all of a sudden we saw each other. And we're like, hey, so oh, that's Samantha Esteban. That. Yes, thank you. Little side note. <laughs> And I want to add, as we're talking about Tim's career, I'm picking out a lot of really quirky roles, but he has had far more substantial roles in Saved by the Bell, The New Class, and we're going to talk about one of those a little bit later on in the show. But yeah, so Saved by the Bell, The New Class, it somehow did manage the last seven seasons, which I can't believe. But uh, you're on one of my other favorite sitcoms that sadly didn't make it past the first, and that was All-American Girl. Oh. And uh, that was Margaret Cho's vehicle, which also had Clyde Kasatsu, Jody Long, B.D. Wong, and the amazing Amy Hill. So that's a lot of royalty right there. Right. Uh, and you were part of the pilot. Of that, of that series, and you got to spend some one-on-one yes, time with Margaret Cho, along with Maggie Corman and Judy Gold. And yeah, you can tell I'm actually a pretty big, legit fan of the show. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I'm like I'm like the well, only All-American Girl fan out there. You know, when they first were casting that show, I wasn't around. I was working on a movie of the week in North Carolina and uh, called Leave of Absence. And so they had already cast all that. That part was cast. Everything was cast. I uh, came. I came back at some point, and uh, I think it was in. It was probably a few weeks before 
the pilot was going to air. And uh, Garrett Wong, who was in also an All-American Girl, but obviously, as you know, Harry Kim yep. from uh, Star Trek Voyager, he, get, you know, he gives me a call. And uh, I said, hey, what's up? And we were talking and stuff. And he goes, well, he goes, you know, I, he goes, you know, All-American Girl? And I go, yeah. And he goes, I played this part in the pilot. And, uh, but they now want to use me in another episode as her boyfriend. And I go, yeah, <laughs> he goes, so they asked me, do I know anyone who could, who they could just use to, to, uh, replace him in the, in the pilot. And I said, uh, is it a guest star? <laughs> and then there's like this huge pause. Garrett and I, who are great friends have had these moments in our, uh, acting relationship where, uh, <laughs> You know, we've, we've, there have been some uncomfortable moments that we, that we had to work through when we were younger. Yeah. And, uh, and he goes, uh, I don't know. And I go, well, I can only do it if it's a guest star. Because at that <laughs> point, I had already had gotten these other things under my belt, and I was now moving on. I was not going to do any more co-stars, et cetera. And uh, though Amy Hill, who you talked about, she once said, yeah, I remember I knew someone who was like that, and I don't know what he's doing now. <laughs> but uh, Amy Hill's but the best. Anyway, yeah, you know, because Clyde, who's also that actually that ended that taping that night, I'm going stream of consciousness now, but he, I remember him telling me a story about as an Asian American male actor, you never get momentum. So you cannot keep saying no to things. Mm. Um, and I'll never forget that. But anyway, I, we ended up hanging up after a few more line, conversa, you know, conversation about that because I, I said, well, thank you, but no. <laughs> and so, so then the next day, fast forward, and he was pissed. He was so angry that I, uh, you know, he was giving me this bone and I was saying no. And so then uh, my agent called me the next day and said, uh, and who's my manager now, actually. But he said, hey, Tim, he goes, All-American Girl wants to see you for pilot. And I go, oh, yeah. And yeah, I already told, I, I was asked about that yesterday. I said, no. And he goes, why? And I told him why. I didn't feel it was big enough. And he says, well, he, he goes, this has the potential to recur. You know, it could be a recurring role. I go, oh, well, okay, if it can be a recurring role, then sure. And so then I went in for it. And I'll never forget, I'm sitting in the room to to meet the casting person who is uh, Nikki Valco, someone who would end up casting me a lot in my career back then. Um, and uh, I'm seeing these two actors across. I recognize Steve Park from... Um, um, what was the show called? The Variety Show, the Wayne Brothers. Talking about in Living Color. In Living Color. Thank you, thank you. So I recognized Steve from that, and then another guy. And years later, I would find out that they were Steve leaned over to this other guy, Charles Chen, saying, uh, "Who's that guy?" You know, because I was still new to a lot of people. And uh, and he goes, "Oh, he's just some modeling actor hack." <laughs> so I was just like, "Wow." But anyway, I went in for that. She, so I, I went in to read for Nikki Valco, and she said, uh, after I did the scene, she goes, where were you uh, when we were originally casting the show? And I said, oh, I was, uh, I was in shooting a movie of the week in North Carolina. And she went, okay. And then she asked if I'd stay for producers, and I said, sure. And so then I ended up getting the part, and, uh, and, and that was wonderful, too, because I met, since I was doing the part it was a pickup so i was working with actors who were doing a different episode and someone who i'd eventually work with a couple more times uh sab shimono 
was working that episode and he, it was great to, uh, to work with him. And, and then, you know, I became my friends with everyone from that show. That was sort of the original of me starting to build bonds with the community. And, uh, and so it was a, that too was a great experience. It was unfortunate. I felt that show was really poorly written, um, that they had, uh, really limited Margaret and, and also the community was so divisive and wasn't looking at the bigger picture of how to make the show better. They were just there to castigate it, the writing and stuff. And, you know, the, the, the nation was ready to see Asian Americans at that point because that pilot was ranked fifth in the Nielsen ratings that week. Like, I honestly think that show was just too soon. You know, like if, if it had been out five more years when, when it came out, I think it would have done amazing. At that point, I just don't think the country knew what to do with it. Well, I tell you, though, I think it, I think it still would have done well. It still could have been like an Asian-American uh, have the same success as, say, the Cosby show or something if the writing was right. I just don't yeah. feel the writing was right. And so then it wasn't, you know, people became disinterested. You know, they, they it didn't hook them in. You know, I think I think it was really and then that that doomed it. That one more thing, talking about Asian American being an Asian American actor in the '90s. That show alone just really hurt us big time, because that was proof to the networks that nope, country's not ready to see Asian Americans. We don't need to to do Asian American shows. Which is horrible. So it wouldn't be it would be like what another decade or if not two until we actually got like yeah, uh, fresh off the boat. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. Which I, I can't really think of too many other Asian leading shows at this point still uh, that are on TV. One thing I'm worried about, too, is that we've had all this success that has been occurring, and I feel like the dam has busted, so you're not pulling it back, especially when we have all these outlets for content. But I did get nervous at first when the virus hit and thinking, oh, no, now everyone's, you know, it's yellow fever again. Everyone's uh, banging on the Chinese and all this stuff, and it's only going to affect us. But I realize now, no, it's not, that's just not going to happen. You know, the dam is busted and uh, people want to see contents of all type and people want to see society, the society that they see on an everyday basis. They want that reflected in what they're watching on the screen. Trek Untold will return momentarily. Trek Untold is brought to you by Triple Fiction Productions. If you're a Star Trek cosplayer looking for props, or toy collector looking to spice up your shelves, Triple Fiction Productions has you covered. Triple Fiction Productions produces affordable and unique 3D-printed Trek-inspired products from the original series, Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Enterprise, and the movies. You can expect the same amount of care and attention to detail in any of the items in their catalog, whether it's a prop replica for use in a fan film, or a part of a cosplay, or accessories and playsets for figures from Playmates, Migos, or Diamond Select. Own your very own tricorder or phaser rifle with working lights, the bridge of the Enterprise E for your Playmates figures, or any other item from countless species and ships from the Star Trek universe. All products are 3D printed in the USA and are constantly evolving and improving based on fan feedback. To learn more about their products, visit them at triple-fictionproductions.net or on Facebook at facebook.com slash triplefictionproductions. Triple Fiction Productions, taking Star Trek where no 3D printer has gone before. Hi, my name is Walker Brandt, and I was privileged to play the role of Cadet Hajar in the episode The First Duty, Star Trek The Next Generation. 
I was also a guest on Trek Untold a few months ago. And during my interview with Matt, I introduced my new book, Awaken, Discovering Yourself Through the Light of Your Innocence. The dedication in Awaken reads to the human spirit, the final frontier within. I'm a Trekkie, I'm a fan, and I have always believed that the final frontier is our unlimited imagination. And the reason I wrote my book is to support the reader, to always remember that when you combine your unlimited imagination with your innocence, you know, that playfulness as a child where you had no fear about the unknown. In fact, every single day you woke up into the unknown and you wanted to explore. That's been my journey. And that's how I believe that we change our reality for the better together because we're all creators and we're all explorers. So I ask you, what excites you? How will you expand and go where you've never been before? What steps will you take to embrace the unknown? So awaken, discovering yourself the light of your innocence is there to support the reader, to share my journey, to let you know you're not alone, to let you know that if you've been through challenges and difficulties and times in your life where you felt like you just couldn't go on, I've been there with you. And this book is there for you to encourage you to keep getting back up and moving forward into the adventure. So I hope you have a chance to read it. It's titled Awaken, Discovering Yourself Through the Light of Your Innocence, and it's available on Amazon. And it's a number one international bestseller. So I hope you get a chance to get on that journey with me. And if you'd like to reach out to me, you can find me at walkerbrandt.com or on my social media, Facebook, Instagram. Thanks so much. And I hope we get a chance to connect. We now return to Trek Untold. So, Tim, let's beam up now into our Star Trek discussion. You were cast in the Season 7 episode, Eye of the Beholder, as Lieutenant Daniel Kwan. So tell us how you got cast for Star Trek The Next Generation. Well, it's funny because I was a huge Trekkie and uh, not what we called at the time a Trekker, which was for Star Trek Next Generation. I I boycotted Star Trek Next Generation for, for, (laughs) for a long time. And, uh, you know, whenever someone would say, no, Tim, it's actually for, no, I'm not going to watch it. <laughs> you know, there is one Kirk, Spock, all of that. And so, uh, I got sick. I had a really bad case of the flu and my girlfriend at the time was taking care of me. And she, I knew all this time that she was big into the next generation TNG and, and she had these VHS tapes of like all these episodes. So I said, okay, I'm going to give it a chance. I'm going to watch it. And, you know, obviously first episode I got hooked in and, uh, I watched all those episodes that weekend. And then I'm like, I need to be on the show. And I knew it was the seventh season. You know, I looked that up and saw it was seven season. I'm like, I've got to get on this show the next day, Monday, I get a call from my agent saying I had an audition for, for, uh, I had to beholder for Star Trek next generation. I was like, sweet. Okay. And so I, I go in and, you know, I did my thing and, and got the job. And that was an amazing experience because for Next Generation, there's a guy, Michael Westmore, who was like, they called him the king. And the Westmore family, it's really interesting. But if you look at any old movie or most of them, you'll always see a Westmore name for for makeup. Yeah, the Westmores are legendary. Yeah, they're like first family of, of makeup. and. uh I actually had some Westmore who did uh, who who did my makeup on a short film, you know, way back when. And at times, oh, sweet, you're a Westmore, you know. And who knows where she is right now? I'm sure she's doing fine. 
but yeah, it was great meeting Michael Westmore and, and great going in and, you know, I was going in like at four in the morning. And so I'd be like one of three cars on the lot, you know, and, and, uh, just driving in and, uh, walking by the big, uh, there's like this huge outdoor screen thing that's used like concrete screen or something that was used for like jaws and stuff like that. And, uh, so anyway, you'd draw, you'd walk in and I'd get in and I'd be in the chair for like three and a half, four hours for makeup. And, uh, and I, that alone was so well worth getting that job. Um, the thing about Star Trek next generation, maybe all the Star Treks, I'm not sure, but you know, all the aliens were designated by different foreheads pretty much. And so, uh, you know, that's, so you'd see all these different foreheads and stuff that were being created, but they were kind enough because uh, one one of the makeup people, I said, "Hey, can I can I keep this?" And, oh no no no, we're not supposed to do that. And I was like, "Okay, I just thought for my first guest star because yeah, that was my first guest star role." And so they said, oh, "Do not tell anyone." And it just like slipped me my forehead. And uh, <laughs> it's well, it's it's still mostly intact, but I, I dare not touch it. I think these days now because it, it's it's starting to get a little decrepit. And how long did the makeup take for that role? Three and a half to four hours, I'd be doing it. And actually, one day I uh, went on, and, and it was for shooting the. If you watch the episode, there's a scene where they're looking back after I died, and they're looking at my on, on the screen. You know the what I, I'm t- I'm talking about something, and so uh, I was shooting that stuff that day. So literally, you know, almost four hours of makeup and hair go on the set and they're waiting for me, bang it out in like two takes, come back. It's literally 15 minutes later. <laughs> and the makeup person is looking at me walking into the trailer and she goes, no, you're not. And I go, uh, yeah, I'm sorry. We're done. And she's like, oh my God. <laughs> so, and that was three days of work for that, for that part. So it was a fun three days and, you know, and it's great. You know, when you grow up, like I said before, I'm not starstruck or anything like that. But when I when I am able to experience either sets or people that I watched as a kid, and next year on it or meeting the person, it, that that stuff has always been very cool to me. Unless, of course, in terms of the person, if they turn out to be a jerk, then you're like, oh, that sucks. <laughs> but uh, you know, but and that does happen. And uh, but uh, but yeah. I was, I love Star Trek. Oh, and I'll never forget. Uh, so when, uh, I was in the trailer to, they, they needed me right away to, for, for something. And so I was waiting and I was having an issue. Oh, and I think this is why I came into the trailer. I was having an issue with my boot and I, I wasn't sure how to tie it or something. And, and I'll never forget Gates McFadden just coming over and go, Hey, let me, let me help you with that. And so here's Gates <laughs> McFadden kneeling down to take care of my boot. And I was like, Oh my God, this is crazy. <laughs> but they were so nice. You know, uh, LeVar Burton was extremely friendly. You know, everyone, everyone was cool. Um, my, the unfortunate thing for me is like, I never got to meet the captain. <laughs> so, no. you know, you know, that, that would have been, that would have been the icing on the cake. But Marina Sirtis and I had the same manager, so I used to have dinners and stuff with her. So that was always fun too. She's uh, she's like hanging out with one of the boys, essentially. <laughs> so I think one of the unique things about this episode, Eye of the Beholder, is that the role was always meant to be Asian. It was always Lieutenant Daniel Kwan, which yeah. you know on on TNG, uh, you know you had Patty Asutaki as uh, Ogawa, and that was pretty much the only other Asian character that was a regular or recurring part in the show. Um, so yeah, it's just pretty interesting to see that you know that was actually always meant to be 
someone that was an Asian character in this universe. Yeah, and not only Asian, but mixed race. Yeah. You know, so uh, human-alien mix. And uh, so I thought that was very cool also. And also the, the other half of me, the alien half of me was Napian. And I learned that uh, up to that point, Napians had only been extras in the shows. So huh. this was the first time they were seeing uh, a Napian character in a principal role. It was also the first time the cell tube was being seen. Yeah, this was the first time that the control room of the Nacell tubes were ever shown, uh, which is pretty awesome. Yeah. And again, you being an original Trek fan, what did you think of just these next generation sets? It's crazy. You know, it was like, uh, granted, it doesn't look the same as you see on the screen. You know, it's, 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 but it's still very cool walking around the different things, pressing buttons that you're not supposed to press, you know, and, <laughs> and, uh, I, my hat's off to all set designers because it's so cool what they do. And, um, you know, it really helps in terms of acting because it puts you in the world. You know, if you work on something where you don't get all of that, then you really have to make sure you're, you're grounded in what you're doing as an actor. But when you have, uh, this world that's created by set designers, uh, it just enhances everything and you're able to just immerse yourself. So your scene is basically the show open, and uh, spoiler alert, it's where Lieutenant Kwan kills himself. Uh, and you share that scene with Jonathan Frakes, Michael Dorn, and uh, Nancy Harewood as Lieutenant Nara. Uh, so what do you remember about yeah. filming that pretty emotionally draining scene? I would imagine it would be emotionally draining to do something like that. Yeah, I, it's funny because um, the first thing that, that was funny about that is I'm not doing the stunt work. I'm not jumping in. So they found a stunt guy. They were having a hard time finding a a stunt guy that was my size that was Asian American. And so they ended up finding this guy. I can't remember his name right now. We, we had a nice talk and stuff, but you know, he was like 20 years older than me. <laughs> like, how's this going to work? You know, but obviously they know how to make it work. And, uh, but watching him jump and I can't imagine, especially as I got older, knowing how my body was, I can't imagine what his body was taking, how he did not mess up his back. And I'm sure he was feeling it the next day, but this guy had to keep jumping and jumping and hitting these mats a certain way. At one point he hit it at an, a bad angle. And it's like, it's again, another aspect, all these things that go into creating a project, you know, so many people focus on what's on camera, the actors, whatever, but none of this would be cool without having the rest of the team involved in creating it. And uh, stunt stunt people, you know, and they never have like awards and stuff for stunt people. It seems like, and and they deserve it. I mean, it's it's amazing what stunt people do. Yeah, no one actually seems to know the name of that stunt person. But I mean, I gotta tell you, watching him jump, uh, it was like watching American Gladiators. He was going for it. Yeah, I think his first name's Michael. Um, I actually could get that name. Maybe I'll, I'll tweet that out to you or something. But um, I I'm I'm sh I know I have the paperwork. I'm sure I'm pretty sure I have his name. Uh, that'd be great, yeah, because like, on Memory Alpha, which is where all the Star Trek information is held, uh, they don't even know who that is. So, yeah, that'd be great to actually get him and wow. to know, you know, make sure he's recognized for yeah. his work. Yeah, definitely. You know, in terms of uh, the emotional aspect of it, yeah, it's it's something. And, and this is just in general. Like, even just for this audition that I was taping yesterday, which was really emotional. It puts you in that place. Uh, you definitely uh, are affected by it. But the thing that I do and I, and I think other actors do not all actors do it but for me i also am able to compartmentalize 
so once it's, once I'm done, then I let it go, you know, and we got to go to the next scene, which might be, you know, a shiny, smiling, happy scene. (laughs) So you can't carry that into that scene, you know, so, so you learn to be able to shut it off, but when you're in it, you are in it and you make yourself completely vulnerable to it. So yeah, it was, it was cool. So you primarily are sharing the screen with Jonathan Frakes. He's trying to stop you from jumping in. Uh, How'd you like working with Jonathan? Jonathan was great. He was very professional um, and friendly. It wasn't like, uh, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't going to make me his best buddy or anything like that, but uh, he was completely fine to work with. You know, I I don't think he would have been bending down to tie my shoe though, (laughs) but I, I really enjoyed it. Again, it's one of those things where, you know, I literally had just been watching him that weekend, and so uh, I appreciated what he did and what he meant to the show. And uh, so anything like that, you know, it, it's enjoyable to work with 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 the people that, that mean much, that are that important to a show. So this episode was directed by Cliff Bull. He had been directing Next Generation episodes for many, many, many years at this point. Uh, did he give you much direction for your scenes? I liked Cliff, working with Cliff. I, I remember him being very friendly and uh, very uh, sort of thoughtful. And, you know, he basically, what he did is he just sort of laid things out for me, but he pretty much let me do uh, what I did. And then he might, you know, whisper something into my ear, a little adjustment or something like that. And then we do another take. I don't have uh, any memories of him being too invasive or anything like that. Or, or you know, he, he pretty much just uh, let me do my thing. And then, and then made minor adjustments here and there. You know, it's funny. I I, I got to tell you, I can hear his voice actually, the <laughs> the tone and timbre of it. So that's interesting. Ah, he's made quite an impression, I guess. <laughs> now, was uh, Cliff there when you filmed the personal logs? Because I've heard typically when they do those, usually it's like the second AD that comes in to direct the actor for that. No, Cliff was there. Cliff he was always was there, there when I worked. Yeah. Okay. Now, this being the final season, and your episode aired the 18th out of 26, so you're fairly close to the end, but, uh, you know, how is the environment on set, considering that this is the final season, and it's fairly close to the wrap? You know, it's interesting. Uh, like I talked about uh, Saved by the Bell, in terms of how they were were in that final season, uh, nothing like that with Star Trek. It was a professional set that just did its thing. Everyone was doing their thing. I never, I don't even recall anyone hearing anyone talk about that. You know, they were they were just doing their thing. Now, did you watch the episode when it first aired on TV? <laughs> yes, I did. Uh, I watched it with a few friends. I had a, my best friend was had a business meeting down in L.A. He he was up in San Francisco and he came down to L.A. And so we actually were able to get together. I got together at his hotel and uh, we watched it there with another friend. And then uh, I'll never forget uh, right after. I jump and commit suicide. Uh, my phone started ringing and my brother, <laughs> my brother goes, Tim, it's Mike. You got to talk to your niece. And I'm like, what's up? And, you know, and she was my goddaughter, Nicolette. She was like the first, you know, grandchild in the family. And, uh, I go, what's up? She was, she thinks you're dead. I'm like, Oh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and so apparently he, he, you know, I, I get on the phone and I go, honey, I'm here. It's all right. It's all pretend. I was just playing, just playing. And I go, yeah, it was just playing. It's like, like playing pretend. Oh, okay. <laughs> and so, and then I find out later there when they were watching it, uh, 
Mike goes, there's Uncle Tim. Uncle Tim? Yeah, there's, that's Uncle Tim. You know, that, and, and she goes, Uncle Tim? <laughs> I jump, and she's like, Uncle Tim is dead? <laughs> so, <laughs> so, yeah, mini crisis, but we took care of it. Oh, that sounds like a pretty good compliment, though, if you were that convincing. <laughs> well, I think she was like three or four years old at the time. I'd still take it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so the ep- this episode of Star Trek The Next Generation was not your only appearance in the franchise. You returned to do one of the Star Trek video games. You were in Star Trek Away Team in 2001 as the voice of Vin yeah. Asunder. So how did you end up back in Star Trek doing voiceover work? Because I know your career actually has had some VO work on it. Yeah, well, um, I think that came through my commercial agent, did it? Maybe not. Maybe they called me in through my theatrical agent for that one. Um, you know, that was in the beginning when video games were starting to become, they, they, they saw the potential for video games starting to become big. So I went on a few auditions for video games, and this happened to be one of them. And it was the same casting people as, as that I had met before. It was, uh, God, Ron Surma the, was the assistant or the associate, and uh, uh, Junie Lowry Johnson. So it was Junie Larry Johnson, Johnson and Ron Sermon. They called me in for it, and I got the part. So pretty uneventful in terms of how I got the part. And then I remember, though, that was the first time after laying down the voice tracks. Um, you know, because when you do video games, it's, it's not like you're around everyone else. At least it wasn't when I was working on video games. I, uh, I was in a booth, and I had my line. And I would, the director would tell me the scenario and then I would do my lines. Um, and then that was the very first time that I had been interviewed <laughs> for something. So after, uh, well, for, in terms of acting. So after the, we were done, I went into another room and, and did, uh, what would be now a common special feature at the end of a DVD, um, interview with them. And it'd be interesting to see what I had said. I don't even remember what I talked about really. And I can't play that game. I never, I never played the game all the way through. So I actually, to this day, have never heard of what I sound like as Vin Asunder. Ah, oh, that's unfortunate. Yeah, because I was curious, you know, if you remember anything about the part itself or how the game was. Yeah, I just remember in the beginning because I have the game, and I, I didn't grow up a gamer or anything. So I had put it in my computer, and I started to play, and and the team enters this facility. And then I could never get past that facility, and I just gave up. <laughs> so I said, well, oh, well, I just will not know what my character does, you know, what 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 happens, what I look like or anything. But now I do know what I, my character looks like, you know, from the Internet. But I, I still have not heard at all what I sound like. I'm actually right now trying to get the voice tracks lifted up at, from it from someone, if they can do it. All right, well, hopefully you can get those. Yeah. So you have one final role in something Star Trek-related. It's not exactly Star Trek, but it is Star <laughs> Trek-related. And this one is very much forgotten about, and it's also very finger-licking good. <laughs> yeah. You were in a KFC commercial where you played Lieutenant Sulu on the bridge of the original Enterprise, and the crew is trying to get some fried chicken for Captain Kirk. This is like one of the yeah. craziest commercials ever. you got to tell me something about this craziness. Yeah, this this was an amazing experience, and... and uh... You know, not because it was KFC or anything, but because it was Star Trek. And it was one of my first jobs, actually. It was my very first commercial. Uh, And the reason why it was little known is because it was a worldwide buyout, which means that it plays internationally, but did not play in the United States. I went in for that audition. You know, we did our thing and stuff. And 
And then uh, I haven't heard about it or anything. And then my girlfriend at the time says, oh, I'm going in for this audition. And it turns out to be the exact same characters that I had read for. And I was like, <laughs> well, that's weird. Because at the time, we don't know what we're, what really what we're going in for. We're just reading parts and stuff, you know. And so then uh, find out that, you know, I get the part. And, uh, and I do it. And, and that alone is an amazing experience because it was the very first time it was celebrating the 25th anniversary of the original cast. And, and it was, it was the first time that the set designer that had designed and built the original Star Trek bridge was doing it again for this commercial. And, uh, so that was so cool for someone like me. And, uh, and then, uh, we've, you know, we were given, uh, the voice recordings, these voice recordings. And so I knew I was doing Sulu and, uh, and I had all these different tracks that George laid out. And so I was learning them and, you know, because I knew that I would be mounting them. And then on top of that, I have to go in for makeup for, and this was the very first time I was, I was having this happen where, you know, they put the plaster on your face and, uh, you know, they're making prosthetics so that they can get me to look like, uh, George much as possible. My makeup guy, effects, makeup effects guy is a guy named Matthew Mungle, who was an Oscar winning, uh, makeup guy. And, uh, and he was great. You know, we actually had, at the time I had been studying, I'd been doing a part as a serial killer for stage. And so I had done a lot of reading and research on that. And it turns out that he was sort of a, a, a nut about that stuff too. And so we, uh, we were, we, we found a common bond in terms of that, in terms of talking about stuff. And, and he later on, uh, when I had a theater company, I would sometimes go to him and say, Hey, do you have this? Or can I get this? So we kept a mini relationship like that. But then, uh, also the DP was uh Oscar winning guy. Um, you know, he had done, uh, I think the movie he had done just before then was a Clint Eastwood movie where he's the secret service guy uh, in the line of fire. And uh, so, yeah, so it was just like, wow, it's like all this time. That's where I first learned how commercials, you know, the, they would hire these uh, big time directors to, and for the, you know, and, and crew and stuff. And those people loved it because it was good money and it was something that they could do in between their other jobs. Yeah, and it's it's a really honestly, I, I feel weird saying this, but it's a really gorgeous looking commercial. Just the prosthetics are yeah. so convincing, and the set design is just beautiful. It looks, it almost looks better than the original Enterprise. Uh, as bizarre as that is, yeah, it's, and it it's so, so fun good. because I think, uh, it, and it's great and it's so fun. And I think a testament to that is how people now watch it. There, are people are still watching it and commenting on it, and and you know, and have a good time. You know, it's fun to watch. And the guy who played Kirk needed very little prosthetics. <laughs> he really, really did look like William Shatner. And now for the voices, you guys are basically uh, being dubbed over. Was that the original cast actually providing their voices? It was. Wow. It was all the original cast. And, and actually, I saw a tweet today. Someone said, where was Spock? And uh, I that tweeted back question. and go, yeah, Leonard Nimoy uh, didn't want to do it. Huh. So since they didn't have his voice, they didn't they didn't have his character on, 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 in the show, in the commercial. Now, did you ever get to meet George Takei? Cause I'd love to know what he actually thought about your voice or about, I'd love to know what he thought about your portrayal I, I, of Sulu. Uh, you know, like I said before, especially back then, the community was very, uh, close knit. So I actually got to know George, uh, very well. We, we, I think we did some panel discussions together and, um, uh, and then, uh, my wife, 
uh, acted with him at one point. Um, and, uh, you know, I've, I've had many uh, meetings with George, um, but that was the first time I was meeting him back then. And I remember uh, when I was first going to a uh, some type of benefit or something uh, in the Asian American community, that's where I first met him. And he was talking up on stage. Oh, we were sitting at the same table. And so I let him know I'm the guy who <laughs> that commercial. And uh, he's, oh, so when he was on stage, he goes, and here's the younger version of me down there. <laughs> you know? and so, but he, he was always much, a lot of fun. You know, oh my. But yeah, great guy. One more thing about George is uh, I'll never forget uh, doing a panel with him once. And then we walked together to the parking lot and it was there he told me the story of being in an internment camp growing up with his family and uh and talking about his mom so i, I always have that's always a special memory i have of, of him did you ever get to see allegiance uh yeah uh i saw it it was a fathom screening i didn't see it live oh i did see it live with a different cast but uh the, the one i really liked was the one on uh, film that they filmed from, I guess, Broadway. Uh, another good friend of mine was in that, Leia Salonga, and she was, it was wonderful to watch her too. Um, but yeah, I quite enjoyed it. Quite, you know, I, I know that story very well. Uh, my, my wife is Japanese American. So I first learned about the internment experience from her aunt and uncles. Now, one final question about that KFC commercial, because you were very convincing when you're, when you're eating that piece of fried chicken. Was it actually real fried chicken they gave you, or was it just some piece of, like, stunt rubber that was painted up? No, <laughs> no, it was real. Um, I, I don't recall if it was warmed up, because I know there was chicken that was sitting out there for a long time. But, uh, uh, and it was, I didn't have to do too many eating takes. I, I did feel sorry for the actor who played uh, Captain Kirk, because I remember one take in particular that he had to do, like, 26 times, because... He wasn't getting the line just right how they wanted it, so they had to, he had to keep doing it, and so he had to keep eating that chicken. And I know what it's like. I've done that in other scenes. I once had to eat a bunch of cold McDonald's French fries uh, over and over again, and that was brutal. I mean, but uh, even those warm are brutal. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And by the way, folks, I can't take credit for discovering this beautiful mess of a commercial, so shout out to the All the Asians on Star Trek podcast. That's how I found out about it, so go check them out also. Nice. But aside from Trek and everything else we talked about today, uh, as you've alluded to in this interview, you ultimately decided to leave acting in, I think it was 2010, right? Uh, yeah, it was uh, end of 2009. So what was it that made you want to leave for good from acting? Uh, it was the reality. Um, like It touches upon when you were asking me how, how was it to be an Asian American actor in the 90s. And so, you know, because there was that ceiling... I was never able to get above like guest stars or, you know, doing good parts in indie films. And so um, by the time the 2000s hit, you know, getting in, in that 2007, 2008, 2009 period, it became uh, brutal because now I was also not the young buck anymore. But at the same time, I wasn't being seen as an older character. And so I was in what one executive at the time, who was a friend of mine, said the tweener stage. And the tweener stage is like death for an actor because you, you know, we need to make money. <laughs> and if, if we haven't been a series regular and we don't have that cash stocked away, you know, it's very difficult. I was the, the main breadwinner in our household. 
at the time. And so to raise a family of what became four uh, was not sustainable with the career, uh, with how my career was going. And so it was just, it was so wild because I remember other actors, you know, you, any actor knows a number of actors that they've befriended who you see from time to time leave the industry because they, they have to go get a regular job and, you know, they've given up. I never saw myself as someone who would have to do that. I always saw myself as someone that was going to find much success in this industry. And, uh, but I was hit with the reality that I have a family and that's my number one priority. And so that's why I left. Uh, I surprised so many people when I said I was leaving. I mean, people, it really surprised people that I, I was leaving. And when I left, I cold it, I cut it cold clean. I mean, that's, it's just like how I said I can compartmentalize for other things. I compartmentalized in terms of that. I had that career. I'm now moving on to a new career. And I'm going to uh, do this as for being a good husband and a good father. And that's what I did. And, you know, you say that, you're going to do that. And it's like, okay, what am I going to get with my uh, resume? <laughs> you know, it's like, who cares that I went to Cal? It's like, if I don't have any experience in, in any of these industries. so. I went to uh, Screen Actors Guild, and uh, they have a career counseling center. So they were a huge help for me. And and we started talking about what I have done, and they helped me to create what they called a functional resume. And that basically showed your transferable skill sets for, for other things. And uh, at the same time, I put the word out to a few friends, you know, that if you see anything, please let me know. And one of them ended up seeing a, a part, a, a job position open up. It was uh, for marketing manager of uh, East West Players. And they were the nation's number one Asian American theater. They're the longest continuously running theater of color. And uh, they were established in 1965 uh, by Mako and Sun Teko and others. And um, uh, I, I, I had, I was fortunate. I wasn't the actor who all he did was acting. I ran a theater, I founded a theater company with others and helped to run it. And so I had the administrative skill set from that. Um, and I, uh, produced a couple of award shows and stuff. So I, uh, submitted for it, got the call from a guy named Tim Dang. And we had a phone conversation and it was supposed to be like 10 minutes, ended up going for about 40 minutes. He kept saying, oh, I got other people waiting for me to call them. You know, but in that conversation at some point, he said, why are you going for the marketing position? And I said, well, because at Lodestone, that was uh, really a specialty of mine. I, I handled all of our marketing. And he said, uh, because we have another position opening and that's for the business administrator. And he goes, and I think you would be able to do that. And I said, really? I said, well, I go, I don't really have the resume for that. And I'm sure you have a lot of people, you know, up for that. And he goes, yeah, I do. But I also know that, you know, I know Lodestone and I know what you did. And, and it's not like I'm leaving. I'll be here. So I'll be able to help. And so fast forward, I said, I'd throw my hat in for both. And I ended up becoming their business administrator. And I did that for two and a half years, averaged, you know, uh, 90 hour weeks, if you include the, uh, 
commute from where I live near Magic Mountain all the way to downtown every day. And uh, that ended up becoming unsustainable, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and I loved doing what I did. I was stimulated. Uh, I remember the day after I accepted the position, I get a call from my agent, my ex-agent at this point, saying, Hawaii Five O wants to see you for this. They have, they're, they're doing the series and one of the regulars, they want to see you for a regular part. That's what Daniel Day Kim ended up doing. And, uh, I said, no. And they go, Tim, it's, it's a series regular. And I go, yeah, but I just made a commitment to this organization. I just accepted the position on condition that I was leaving acting. I'm not going to, I'm not going to leave them in the loop. (laughs) So that's when my ex agent, he never called me again. <laughs> but then I did that. It became unsustainable. I left. And then I uh, thought I was coming back into acting at that point, but ended up uh, going for another job at a Valley Performing Arts Center and worked there for another four years. And then we decided it was time for me to return. And what was the role that brought you back? When I decided to come back, the first thing I thought of was, oh, I have to get representation. And so I thought commercial agent be quick and easy probably if if my old agent is still viable and and I and they take me back and they were good I looked them up and they were still one of the top agencies and so I sent an email saying subject Tim Lunabus and then the message was will you have me back and uh I got a call like 20 seconds later my phone's ringing and she goes you know Tim is Pat Brannon I'm on vacation but does a bear shit in the woods (laughs) well okay and so she said, we have a lot to talk about because things have drastically changed since you were here before. And we'll do that next week. And then that's how it all started. <clears throat> I signed with them. The day after I signed, I get an email uh, that Sheila Guthrie wants to see me for Young and the Restless. It's not commercial, but did I want to go in? My first re- reaction was I can't because I'm still finishing out my job. I had three days left on <laughs> at, that, at that position. And uh, then I realized the error of that thinking and went in and I ended up getting it. And then I booked, uh, I think I booked my first eight parts when I returned. Uh, And that, that, you know, I didn't know when I was coming back, will I even be relevant anymore? Will I be viable? You know, I I had no idea. I was just jumping off the cliff and seeing what was going to happen. And uh, thankfully it happened in in a good way. Yeah, it's definitely worked out because since then you've gone on to do now Criminal Minds, NCIS, Hawaii Five O, and Bosch, where you had a recurring role yep. as Ed Sung. Yep. Uh, yeah. So I mean, what's it like now being back though? Since you know, since your person did say, since well, your agent did say that things have changed, no. what is it different now? Oh well, now the difference is the virus. You know, so. Oh yeah, this is very so much. Yeah. Been on, yeah, everything's been on hold for the last seven months. Let's say pre-virus August, before the entire hour. world went to went to the trash. Yeah, before. Before the world in trash, I also did this Apple commercial, which I found out, wow, it's still good money in national network commercials. That Apple commercial was better to me in terms of, or I should say better to my family than the, what, four or five episodes of Bosch, NCIS, uh, Hawaii Five O put together. Um, and that was eye opening to me. Um, but, uh, uh, it's been wonderful. It's still the same boat, you know, like when I came back, I wasn't sure though, what was I going to play? You know, what were they going to see me at? And that was a transition that was a little 
crazy at first because, you know, the old casting people who knew me, who were calling me back in, they, ha- they had to uh, also sort of work through that because I think in their heads, they were still thinking of the guy that left who was, you know, a more, you know, leading man type maybe. Uh, and now I'm not that guy. I'm more of a character actor type guy, I think. Um, but it's been very good. I've been very fortunate. Once again, I come back and I start working and, uh, and I feel very appreciative of that. But at the same time, you know, it's, it's, I'm not necessarily going out a lot for the series regulars roles or anything, because now I've kind of, I've, aged myself out of that you got the young bucks and i'd be happy to be their dads or their teachers or coaches or what have you and then uh you know some of the older guys there's already people that are established there and stuff so it's sort of working my way through that again but i think what's going to happen is i'm going to just have to create some stuff uh that i work in and i'm I'm working with a buddy right now we're working on a concept and going to write a pilot and and uh outline other episodes and and start shopping that around i think so your journey in acting in Hollywood is very unique. I mean, you basically kind of ignored some stereotypes in some ways because your look was so different. You left acting and then you came back to it. Uh, you know, it, it's been quite a ride for you. So I'm just wondering, what do you feel has been the biggest lesson you've learned about yourself and about your skills through this journey, through this road you've had? Well, I think, uh, number one, and this is actually not something that has changed, though it has maybe been, been enhanced with life experience and wisdom gained from that life experience is that it's just important to be true to yourself and to be respectful to others, you know, and to do your fricking job. <laughs> you know, I mean, you're hired to do something, so make sure you're prepared for it. Do the work that gets you the job and then do the work that ensures success with that job. Um, because those people will always be hired back. You know, my main thing is, is, uh, I love being with people. I respect everyone until they do something that betrays that respect, you know? And so until, until something like that happens, I'm going to look you in the eye. Thank you. And, uh, you know, can I help in any way? What have you? And everyone, you know, when, when you work with others like that, they too appreciate that. And you, you tend to be reciprocated with it, you know, not all the time, but, but, but most of the time. And, And people remember people like to work with people who they like, you know, and if you just are a good guy, you know, people, when, when, when you're on a hectic set and stuff, people prefer that as opposed to someone else who's uh, just a jerk or always trying to get attention or always uh, being way over the top opportunistic. And my family's number one, <laughs> you yeah. know, above all, my family is number one. So, you know, even right now when uh, I'm starting to go up for these parts again, you know, it's, it's, it's things have totally changed too, in terms of that. Cause now it's all about self taping from home. You know, you're not going into offices right now or anything. And, uh, but there's, there's that part of me that's a little leery, like, yeah, I expect that if there's any place that's going to be safe to work, it's on a set that, you know, they're really going to go over the top in terms of sanitizing, social distancing, all that stuff. But I don't want to bring anything home to my wife, you know, or my kids. And, uh, but, but especially I think my wife, for some reason, because that fear of taking my kid's mother away from them and taking life away from my wife is just unbearable to think about. So I'm wrestling with that right now, but, uh, 
she's she's given me her blessing blessing to work again. So we'll we'll see. But uh, yeah, I, my family's number one, always will be. So Tim, what is the best thing about being a part of the Star Trek universe? The best part about being part of Star Trek universe is the community and the being a part of a cultural iconic universe, which it truly is. And uh, those things are special. And in terms of community, you know, social media has uh, been amazing in terms of that. You know, I'm always, to this day, I still get people that are sending me messages or tweeting or putting something on Instagram or whatever regarding my character. And the other aspect of that community are the conventions. I did go to a couple of conventions with uh, Garrett Wong and it was amazing, you know, and one was in Germany and one was uh, over in Massachusetts. But, um, you know, this is a universe that has provided us an escape for so many people. It's something that when everything is going on here in real life, you know, and the, sometimes it involves headaches or misfortune or just that daily grind, this provides a whole other area to escape to and to enjoy and and interact with others who are doing the same thing and who all share that same passion. That's what I enjoy. Well, Tim, thank you so much for giving us so much of your time today. Uh, it's been really an interesting conversation to have with you and uh, definitely a lot of stuff that we've heard from you that we haven't heard more before from other folks because this really is the first time we've really gotten a taste of the Asian-American diaspora in Star Trek and acting. So thank oh, you for, cool. for being so open with cool. us and just telling us your story. You're very welcome. Thank you. Thanks for reaching out. And I think, you know, if I, I, of all the interviews I've done, a lot of them also I did with Bosch and stuff like that. No one has ever asked me about Saved by the Bell, the new class. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm honored was, to be the first. Was, uh, yes. All right, man. I'll talk to you. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. You're welcome. Bye. That was our discussion with Tim Lunabus, an actor that's proved you can reinvent yourself in this industry and that you can fight back against stereotypes when it comes to casting. It's frequent these days to hear pundits argue that the job should go to the quote-unquote best person and quote-unquote woke casting is just a stunt. But really, speak to folks like Tim who are proof that the best person doesn't always get the job when the show decides to go in that infamous other direction. We've heard it on this show before, too, so it's a shared experience across Hollywood, and one that is getting slowly better over time for what we're hearing, but there is still a lot of work to do. And this isn't just some kumbaya nonsense we're spewing here today. The reality is our world is constantly changing, and every human being deserves to be seen and valued as a contributor to our society. Infinite diversity and infinite combinations isn't just a silly slogan to put on a Star Trek t-shirt. It's what makes our world great, and especially what makes the Star Trek fandom so great. And once again, I do want to stress that today, we did spend a lot of time talking about Tim's comedic roles, but he has had plenty more dramatic parts. It's just that the nature of the show, well, we tend to talk about sitcoms more than the serious things. The episode Eye of the Beholder is probably best known not for the mystery surrounding the A-plot of the show, but the intertwined B-plot, which is the official start of Deanna Troy and Worf's relationship. The two began courting earlier in that season, starting in the episode Parallels, but according to writer Brandon Braga, the hints started coming in during season 5. It was originally meant to just be a joke, but as the creative team pondered on it more, they decided it was a good idea to pursue, since Marina and Michael had such good chemistry on set. 
Jonathan Frakes, of course, did not approve of the concept at the time, and there was some fan backlash too. However, Riker and Troy did finally get together in Star Trek Insurrection, they married in Nemesis, and then had children by the time we saw them return in Star Trek Picard. And now as for Worf, well, he met Jadzia Dax on Deep Space Nine, but that's a story for another day. Thank you again for listening to this week's episode of Trek Untold. Please make sure you follow us on social media to see all of our memes and daily guest updates. And who knows what else, because you never know what pops up on our pages. All you have to do is look for Trek Untold on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We'd love to hear from you and hear what you think about this week's episode. If you'd like to support this podcast, check out patreon.com slash trekuntold to learn how you can keep our ship operating at full power. You can also check out some of our merchandise at teespring.com slash stores slash trekuntold. That's T-E-E spring.com. That includes shirts, stickers, mugs, phone cases, and a whole lot more. But most importantly, if you haven't already, please subscribe to this show and give us a review and rating on iTunes or wherever you listen to it. If you enjoy what we do here every week on this show, please give us a five-star rating and review. It's the best way to make new listeners discover this podcast and help us grow. Once again, I'd like to thank our sponsor, Triple Fiction Productions. If you'd like to send us some feedback, suggest a guest, would like to be booked on the show, or are interested in sponsoring us, email me at trekuntold at gmail.com. Once again, this has been Trek Untold. I'm Matthew Kaplowitz, and until next time, fortune favors the bold. <laughs>